But with that, we're going to turn our attention now to Revelation 20. And as we do, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, we come to your word now. We believe that this is your word for us today. This is what you want to say to this church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Fill me with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us in your truth. Your word is truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation 20. This chapter has been the source of a lot of debate. Revelation 20 describes a period of 1,000 years known as the millennium. And there are several different views about what this millennium is and how it relates to the second coming of Christ. One of the commitments that I made at the very beginning of this series of Revelation is that I was not going to mention every possible interpretation of every passage of Revelation uh, as we went on. I mean, if we had done that, we'd probably still be like in chapter 6. I mean, it would take a millennium to go through Revelation just to, to unpack every single possible different viewpoint. So that being said, I, I'm not going to address all the different views of the millennium in this sermon. If you would like an overview of the different views, you can go to our website or our YouTube page and look for the series Truths to Cling to. Uh, find the lesson, The Doctrine of Last Things, and that, that has a brief overview of the various viewpoints on the millennium. And if you'd like an even fuller explanation, I mean, there are articles, there are whole books that you can look, uh, look to for the various viewpoints. But my goal today, I just wanted to state it up front, my goal is just to preach the message of Revelation 20 as best as I can. So that's, that's the goal today. Um, it, it's also important for us to understand that the, the doctrine of the millennium, and, and there's more to Revelation 20 than the millennium, by the way, but we need to understand the doctrine of the millennium is what's often called a third order doctrine. And, and what that means is that we can disagree on this without dividing over this. And so if you hear my view of the millennium and, and you have a different view of the millennium than me, that's okay, all right? We can all relax. I, I'm not going to treat you like a heretic, and I would just ask that you return the favor and not treat me like a heretic. Even if we disagree about this particular issue, I, I would just invite all of us that our heart would be to hear and keep the message of Revelation 20 together. To that end, let's read Revelation chapter 20, and since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? As he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John wrote, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have titled this sermon, Death Gives Way to Victory, borrowing the line from the song, Because He Lives. And that title, Death Gives Way to Victory, has has multiple meanings as we look at this chapter. On the one hand, what we see in this chapter is a message of hope. Uh, We see in this chapter how Jesus' death brought victory over Satan. We also see how if we trust in Christ, our deaths are a gateway to victory. And we see that when Jesus sends Satan to the second death, that will usher in ultimate victory for Jesus and for his people. So on the one hand, we see a message of hope here. On the other hand, we see in this chapter a message of warning. Because this chapter also shows us that before ultimate victory can come, sinful, rebellious humans must also be condemned to the second death. The central truth that I want us to see in this chapter is that Jesus will bring all rebellion to an end. 
Jesus will bring all rebellion to an end. And I want us to consider two responses to this central truth. First, hope in Jesus' victory over Satan. Hope in Jesus' victory over Satan. Whatever one's view is on Revelation 20, one thing that everyone agrees on is that Revelation 20 describes Jesus' victory over Satan. And that's something we can all unite around and rejoice in and look forward to. Now, what we see in Revelation and throughout Scripture is that Jesus' victory over Satan involves two major events. Jesus' first coming when he conquered through his death on the cross, and Jesus' second coming when he will conquer through his judgment. For those familiar with World War II, Jesus' first and second comings have often been compared to D-Day and V-Day. Jesus' first coming was like D-Day. It was the turning point that changed the course of history, but it wasn't the end of the war. Paul says in Colossians that at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and triumphed over them in Christ. Hebrews 2 says Jesus destroyed the devil through his death. But Satan will not be completely defeated until Jesus' second coming. Jesus' second coming will be like V-Day, the, the total defeat of the enemy and the end of the war. And, and so as Christians... Living in this church age, we live between D-Day and V-Day. What I want us to see in Revelation 20 is that this chapter is describing D-Day and V-Day and the time in between. As we aim to hope in Jesus' victory over Satan, first, let's consider Jesus' past victory. Jesus' past victory. As we've walked through Revelation together, we've seen that Revelation is repetitive. John sees multiple visions that look at the same events from different angles, and, and that's what's going on here in Revelation 20 as well. We've seen several passages that describe the period between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. But there have also been two visions that have taken us even, even further back than just that period of time taking us further back to the death of Jesus itself and the victory that Jesus won at the cross. In chapter 5, John saw in the heavenly throne room the lamb standing as though it had been slain, and he was told that that lamb had conquered. It's a picture of Jesus' death and the victory he won in his first coming. In chapter 12, John saw a vision of how at the first coming of Christ, the dragon, Satan, was defeated and how the saints have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb, the cross of Jesus, his death in the past. And what we're seeing in Revelation 20 is a third vision like that that takes our attention all the way back to the victory Jesus won at the cross. In verses 1 and 2, John sees an angel seize the dragon, Satan. He sees the angel seize him, bind him, and throw him into the pit. Uh, this pit, the bottomless pit or the abyss it's sometimes called, is God's prison for fallen angels or demons. 
In his earthly ministry, Jesus cast out a legion of demons, you might recall. And those demons begged him not to have to go to the bottomless pit. Uh, Peter and Jude write about this place. They call it hell. Uh, and they call it, or they describe it as where fallen angels are committed to chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment. And we've actually already seen this bottomless pit in Revelation. In chapter 9, demons came out of it. And John says their king is the angel of the bottomless pit. Or we would call him Satan. In chapter 11 and chapter 17, we see the beast, an, uh, an agent sent by Satan, came out of the bottomless pit. So here in Revelation, John is essentially seeing how Satan got into the bottomless pit. This happened at Jesus' first coming. In the Gospels, Jesus spoke metaphorically about how in his first coming, he came to bind the strong man so he could enter his house and plunder his goods. And what that meant was Jesus came to restrict Satan so that he could free people from Satan's influence. And what we're seeing here in Revelation 20 is Satan bound so that Jesus could free people from Satan's influence. Verse 3 says, Satan was bound for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So as John sees in this symbolic vision, this period of time referred to as a thousand years, what he's seeing is a period between when Satan was bound and when he will be released before his final defeat. So the thousand years then is another symbolic picture of the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And during this time, what we see, what John saw, is that Satan is not able to deceive the nations. Well, we don't have to look beyond Revelation 20 to find out what it means that Satan can't deceive the nations. In verses 7 and 8, what we see is that after the thousand years, Satan will be released and will deceive the nations. And what that means is he's going to deceive the nations to assemble them together for the final battle against the saints, the church. But until that moment, Satan can't deceive the nations like that. In the meantime, what is happening is exactly what Jesus described in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. During this time when Satan is bound, the gospel is spreading to the nations. And people from every nation and tribe and people and language are coming to faith in Christ. This is Jesus' past victory, the victory that he won at the cross. So what does Jesus' past victory mean for us? Well, it means that we ought to be going to the nations with the gospel. We need to take advantage of Jesus' victory that he won over Satan at the cross. Right now, Jesus is restricting Satan so he can build his church. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 to 19, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because of the authority that Jesus is exercising, he has called us to be his witnesses. He, he's called us to hold to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, to use words that we see in verse 4 here. 
So I wondered, what can you do to take advantage of the fact that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations? What is one practical step you can take to contribute to getting the gospel to the nations? Thinking locally, let me encourage you to start by identifying one person, just one person in your life who doesn't know Jesus and answer this question. What is one practical step you can take toward investing in a relationship with that person? What is one step you can take to share how Jesus is changing your life, to share that with this person? Thinking globally, uh, let me encourage you to check out our missions station at the back of the worship center here. One of the things that we're starting is uh, advocacy teams for our missions partners. You can be a part of directly supporting those who are taking the gospel to the nations all throughout the world. The, in any case, I want us all to consider how can we take one practical step toward getting the gospel to the nations. We do this because Jesus has already won a victory over Satan. And with that, he calls us to take advantage of this victory, to live in this victory by sharing the word of our testimony to the nations. So as we aim to hope in Jesus' victory over Satan, we need to consider Jesus' past victory. But second, let's consider Jesus' present victory. Now, in the present, though Satan is bound, he, of course, is not totally inactive. God still permits him to do quite a bit. But what he does cannot stop the advance of the gospel and the success that the church experiences during this time. For example, look at verse 4. John sees the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. These are those who had been oppressed by agents of the devil. Satan exercises his power through the beast, through the false prophet. Satan throws Christians in jail. Satan puts Christians to death. But what happened to those Christians who died, according to verse 4? They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They're seated on thrones and they're given authority to judge. This is what happens for all Christians who die in the Lord. Death is an entrance into eternal life with Jesus. Satan's efforts to war against the church ultimately just usher in more of Jesus' victory for the church. John says this in verse 6. Look at this with me. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what we see in these verses is that there are two deaths, two deaths and two resurrections. And now the first death is physical death. All people experience the first death. But the second death is spiritual death. In verse 14 we're told that the second death is the lake of fire. 
It is eternal judgment under the wrath of God. And the only people who escape the second death, according to verse 6, are those who share in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. It's a resurrection that only those who trust in Christ experience. At the moment we're saved, believers are spiritually made alive with Christ in one sense, and Christians who die before Christ returns experience the fullness of this spiritual resurrection when their souls go to reign with Christ in heaven. Those who share in this first resurrection do not experience the second death. When we trust in Jesus, he saves us from the judgment of the second death. And he gives us the blessing of sharing in the first resurrection. The second resurrection is a physical resurrection. All people will experience the second resurrection, just like all people experience physical death. But we'll talk more about the second resurrection at the end of chapter 20. For now, I want us to consider what does Jesus' present victory mean for us? Well, the blessing of sharing in the first resurrection is that we can serve Jesus without fear of death. What an amazing grace this is. We can walk through life with the confidence that the worst thing Satan can do to us will only usher us into the presence of Jesus. How would that truth change your life if you truly believed it? If we really believe that the second death has no power over us in Christ, one thing that would change is we would not live in fear of the first death. We would not be crushed by the news of a bad diagnosis. We would be willing to take risks for Christ without fear. Another implication, if we truly believe that the second death has no power over us, if we truly believe that that's our hope, then we would also not live as if this life were ultimate. Every once in a while, I think about what it would be like if I died and I didn't get to see my kids grow up. I think about what it would be like to lose my wife, to have to go on without her. I think about how horrible it would be for one of our kids to die. And when those thoughts enter my head, what I'm tempted to do in those moments is, is just, just ignore death. Just ignore it and just try to enjoy today. Just try to enjoy this life and try to get that out of my mind because it's unpleasant. But texts like Revelation 20 are helping me learn that I should not ignore the reality of death. Instead, I should be driven by the reality of resurrection. My kids need to know, my hope is not that I will live forever in this body, but that I have eternal life in Jesus. They need to know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow in this life. 
but they can have hope if they trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. What is best for us, what is best for me, is not pretending like this life is ultimate, not pretending like death is not going to happen. What is best is grounding my confidence in Jesus' resurrection life, his resurrection from the dead that promises my resurrection from the dead if I trust in him. So may our life in this age be grounded in the hope of Jesus' victory over death. And then third, as we aim to hope in Jesus' victory over Satan, let's consider Jesus' future victory. In verses 7 through 10, John sees the end of the thousand years. He sees V-Day when Jesus will return and bring a final defeat to Satan. Now, we saw this depicted at the end of Revelation 19, uh, and John sees it here from a different angle. Satan will deceive all the nations and gather them to battle. These nations are called Gog and Magog here, which is a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And that's a passage that portrays this moment when the nations assemble together for the final battle. On that last day, all those who have not trusted in Christ will be deceived by Satan into opposing the church. And this is portrayed here in imagery that echoes Old Testament descriptions of when the Babylonian army surrounded the city of Jerusalem. You can see that in this army marching over the broad plain, surrounding the beloved city, Jerusalem. But what we've seen over and over and over again, and what we see here again, is that the final battle will not be a long struggle. Immediately, John sees fire come down from heaven and consume the enemy. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire. Just like we saw the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire at the end of Revelation 19. When Jesus returns for this final battle, he will send Satan to eternal torment under the wrath of God. So what does Jesus' future victory mean for us? It it means that one day, the war will be over. Right now, even bound, disarmed, defeated as he is, Satan, Satan is still permitted to do a lot. He tempts, he schemes, he prowls around seeking someone to devour. But if you are in Christ... You need to hear the words of Paul in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The day is coming, and it is coming soon. When God will allow you to share in Christ's final victory over Satan. But we don't have to wait until that day to participate in victory over Satan. Remember the words of Revelation 12, 11. They have conquered him, Satan. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. We anticipate Jesus' final victory over Satan simply by following Christ today. When you remind your brother or sister of the gospel, 
of what Jesus did at the cross and how they can be freed from sin. You are anticipating Jesus' final victory. You're conquering by the blood of the Lamb. When you share the gospel with your neighbor who doesn't know Christ, you're anticipating Jesus' final victory. When you live self-sacrificially and give up your comfort for the sake of honoring Christ, you're anticipating Jesus' final victory. So may we live today in light of Jesus' future victory. Hope in Jesus' victory over Satan. Again, Jesus will bring all rebellion to an end. He will bring Satan's rebellion to an end. And so one way we respond is by hoping in Jesus' victory over Satan. But there's another response we should have to the truth that Jesus will bring all rebellion to an end. And it's this, prepare for Jesus' judgment of humanity. Prepare for Jesus' judgment of humanity. In verse 11, John sees God on his throne, ready to judge all people. Already in Revelation, we've seen glimpses of this final judgment of humanity. At the last trumpet in Revelation eleven eighteen, John heard these words, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. In chapter 14, John saw the harvest of the earth. Uh, and here in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, this final judgment is portrayed yet again. Here in this scene, John sees earth and sky fleeing away. The creation as we know it today is going to disappear. There's no going back. After this moment, everything will be completely different for all of eternity. In verses 12 and 13, John sees all the dead standing before the throne. And this is a picture of the final resurrection. It's what I described earlier as the second resurrection. At the end of this age, all people who have ever lived will be physically resurrected to eternal bodies. We will stand before God, and we will be judged. Jesus described this in John 5, verses 28 and 29. He said, those who have done good will come out of the tombs to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil will come out to the resurrection of judgment. There is no one who is exempt from this judgment. All people will stand before God's throne. John sees books opened, and this is a symbol for the record of everything everyone has ever done. God, the perfect judge, sees all, and he knows all. Nothing has escaped his sight, and nothing has slipped from his memory. God has recorded all works of all people. And on that day, God, we're told, will judge all people according to what they have done. 
And that's the expectation throughout Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And back in Revelation 2, 23, Jesus told his churches, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This moment of judgment, this final resurrection marks the end of death as we know it verse 14 says then death and hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire Uh, you know isaiah wrote about the day that god would swallow up death forever paul said in first corinthians 15 26 the last enemy to be destroyed is death and at the final judgments some will go to eternal life Some will go to eternal death, but after this moment, no one will ever again pass from life into death, because death will be destroyed. So finally then, the last verse of this chapter, verse 15 says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In addition to the books, there is this book of life. We're told the full name of this book in Revelation 13, 8. It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain is a complete record of every single person who is saved from their sins by the death of Jesus Christ. That book is every person who has received God's free gift of grace through faith. On judgment day, when God opens the books and he sees everything that everyone has ever done, what God will see is sin. And all sin against God requires death. If anyone is not found in the book of life, that means they have not trusted in Jesus to save them from their sins. So on judgment day, they will stand on their own. They will answer for their sins without anyone there to help them. God will find them guilty, and they will be sentenced to eternal, conscious, spiritual, and physical punishment under the wrath of God. John sees this portrayed as a lake of fire. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus describes this place as where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We have to understand the seriousness of the wrath of God and the certainty of this future. On judgment day, There will not be anyone spared hell because of what they have done. When God judges all people for what they have done, he will not find some who have been righteous enough to earn heaven. He will not find some who did enough good deeds that they don't deserve hell. Anyone 
who is relying on their own record of works on that day will spend eternity experiencing the second death. The deciding factor of whether you spend eternity in paradise with God or you spend eternity under the wrath of God is whether or not your name is in the book of life. And those who will be found in the book of life on judgment day are those who trusted in Jesus to save them from their sins. Now, those who are in the book of life are not sinless. Those who are in the book of life are guilty of a long list of sins, just like those who are not in the book of life. But those in the book of life are not sentenced to the second death because Jesus already died the death that they deserve to die. Jesus was the perfect substitute for all who trust in him. He is the lamb who was slain in their place. And those in the book of life on that day are there because they received God's forgiveness of their sins through faith alone in Christ alone. And because of that, they will not experience the second death. Instead, they will go to eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth. So if you want to spend eternity in paradise with God, there is only one way to get there, and it's not you. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must not trust in your works to get you into heaven. Those who rely on their works will experience the second death for all of eternity. So, confess your sin to God. Admit what he already knows to be true, what's already in the books. Admit that you've broken his commandments. Admit that you've failed to worship him as God. Admit that you have not given thanks to God as you should. And fall on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Trust in his death in your place to save you from the death that you deserve. Trust in him to rescue you out of your sin and receive him as your Lord and your king. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, we also need to realize that at the final judgment, we too will be judged according to what we have done. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that anyone will get into heaven because of our works. Again, the deciding factor of whether you spend eternity in paradise with God or you spend eternity under the wrath of God is whether or not your name is in the book of life. And your name is written in the book of life by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We will not escape hell because of our righteousness. We will only escape hell if we trust in Jesus' righteousness. And... God will still judge us according to what we have done. So consider a couple of texts on this. I mentioned earlier what Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
Paul says in Romans 2, in verses 6 through 8, he will render, each, render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So at first glance, texts like the ones I just read are hard to square with salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Because it seems the expectation of Jesus and the expectation of John, or excuse me, of Paul, um, is that those who are going to the resurrection of life are marked by good works. And those who are going to the resurrection of death are marked by bad works. And so how do we square these two passages and others like them with the gospel, which is by grace alone, apart from works, and through faith alone? Well, what we need to understand from Scripture is this. Works are not necessary to cause salvation. But works are the necessary result of salvation. Let me say that again. Works are not necessary to cause salvation. But works are the necessary result of salvation. Genuine saving faith always produces the fruit of works. James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I think one of the most helpful passages on this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. After describing a list of qualities such as self-control and godliness and love, he writes, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not earn our salvation through our works. We do not keep our salvation through our works. We confirm our salvation through our works. When we live out Christ-likeness, we demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. So, okay, so why is this so important? Because as we think about this judgment day described in Revelation 20, we need to realize on that day, God will not be fooled. Again, the, the books will be opened. God will see everything. And so it will not be enough on that day to say, oh, I walked an aisle one time. It's not going to be enough to say on that day, oh, Lord, Lord, I repeated a prayer at VBS. It's not going to be enough to say, Lord, Lord, did I not know all the right Sunday school answers? Those things by themselves might fool humans in this life but they won't fool God. When God looks at your life, if he sees a life that never produced the fruit that comes from faith, what he's seeing is a life that's never been transformed by his grace. So may we prepare 
for Jesus' judgment of humanity by heeding the words of Peter in 2 Peter 1.10. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Rehearse the gospel of God's grace. Live in the good of what Christ has done for you. Depend on the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Continue to confess sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Walk, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, as we we read a few weeks ago, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Don't act as if God's grace can ever be treated like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus doesn't save anyone By giving them a ticket out of hell and then leaving them with an unchanged life. Don't coast. God gives us his free gift of salvation. And that free gift of salvation produces works which he has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 says. And God gives us the gift of works in part to reassure our hearts that our names are in the book of life by grace alone, through faith alone. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. Look with me at verses 1 through 4 of 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, pause there. Salvation, new birth, is by grace alone through faith alone. Who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And, keep reading, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What makes us Christians, what makes someone a believer, what is saving is the grace of God through faith, through believing in Christ. That is the means that God uses to cause us to be born again. But the evidence that we are saved is that we love God and love one another. If you have been born of God, Live out the new life that God has given you. When you do, you are living in the good of Christ's victory. Prepare for Jesus' judgment of humanity by living in the good of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone. So again, what we see in Revelation 20 is that Jesus will bring all rebellion to an end. 
And I want you to ask and answer this question. How do you need to respond to that truth? How does the hope of Jesus' victory over Satan need to change uh, the way that you think, the way that you talk, the way that you act? And how does Jesus' future judgment of humanity need to impact your life today? Tonight, we have the privilege of coming together as our community groups to discuss what our answers are to those questions. And so I want to encourage you again to be a part of those as we continue in our worship through the word tonight. In the meantime, let's respond in prayer and in song. Bow with me. Father, as we have seen your word, Lord, we see a message of hope. And so, Lord, I ask that you would ground our hearts in the hope of Jesus' victory over Satan. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in how he has already defeated Satan at the cross. Lord, that we would, with that, go to the nations. And and Lord, I I pray that we would live in the hope of Jesus' victory today, that that we would not fear death, but that we would know that even our death is just a pathway to victory if we trust in Christ. I pray that we would look forward to the day that the war is over, that we would live today in hope of Jesus' final victory. And Lord, I, I pray that we would live in light of your coming judgment on humanity. Lord, that we would remember that everyone will give an account to you. Uh, Lord, I pray that that reality would drive each and every person in this room to place their faith in Christ alone. That that reality would lead every single person to stop relying on their works, to stop relying on their performance, to stop relying on their righteousness, and to fall on the mercy of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that the reality of that day would also motivate us who are in Christ to continue a life of faithfulness, to continue to stand in the grace that we have been given in Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have given us. Lord, that we would continue faithful, steadfast, until the day we see Jesus face to face. We love you.